What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is the fourth in our series of looking at this prayer of Paul in Ephesians 1. We've talked about the blessing with which Paul blessed the Lord himself. We spoke about the Lord's great wisdom and his plan and him predestinating and choosing us in his own mind before the foundation of the world. We've spoken about the fact of the Father of glory, of the Lord himself who is the source of all glory. And we talked about Paul's request that we have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that our eyes, the eyes of our understanding being enlightened, not the eyes of someone else's understanding, but our own eyes being enlightened. It's one thing to hear someone else or read what someone else has seen, but until that becomes revelation to us, it just lays in our brain and it's just dead knowledge. It may be true knowledge, but it hasn't been put to life. And only with the touch of the Holy Spirit in Revelation does it come alive within us and begin to sparkle. Only then can we actually stand on it and actually live on it. That's the difference between information and Revelation. Revelation comes first and then comes information. Now, a lot of times we're all filled with information. We know a lot of facts and figures, but it's never been touched with the sparkle of God. And so it just lies within us and it doesn't produce life. But once the Holy Spirit touches the information that we have within us, it begins to gush forth into a living matter and we're able to to transmit life from one to the other. It's one of my constant concerns being a teacher that I not fill the ears of my listeners with information only. There are many people who minister the Word and minister it beautifully. And they're able to be organized, they're well-read, they've done their homework, their background study, and they minister, and when you leave, you are in awe of the information that they have and how much they know. And yet there are others who maybe not have that much background and don't have that much information, and yet when you leave, you are in awe of the one that they know. It has become revelation to them, and they're able to minister life. And my constant prayer to the Lord is, Lord, let me not just minister information. Let me not stand before people and have them leave the room after having listened to me to be the same as when they walked in. Otherwise, we wasted our time. We should have stayed home and done something fun like wash the car, cut the grass or something. It's one thing to minister truth, and it's another thing to minister life, who is himself the truth. 
And so our desire is not to pass on information only, but that information be sparked. And, and to do this, we have to be supernaturally touched by God. And this is not something that study brings. This is not something that discipline brings. This is something that is the charismatic, uh, the charis of God, the gift of God himself, who reaches down into our spirit and touches the information that we have or the knowledge of him that we have and makes it life itself. Uh, there are some times when I, some people that I've been around and been in their presence and they constantly make me think of Jesus. When I get in their presence, no matter what the conversation is, they remind me I think about Jesus. And they are able to minister life to me whether they give me any information or not. And that is the thing that my heart desires is to be able to minister life. I spoke before a group in Lake Charles Monday night there was a large group of, of women gathered there and some gentlemen gathered there. And um, I was ministering out of uh, the last verse in Second Corinthians, uh, I think it's chapter 13, the very last verse. Where it's, it's the benediction that Paul gives. It says, uh, and now, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit uh, bless you. And I was ministering in those three areas. And I could see that I was saying things that was very new to them. And I was concerned lest I, that they become so upset over something that was new and different that they not be able to receive the, the information as a container of life. And uh, uh, I believe they did. They seem to enjoy it. And you can look and look out over an audience, particularly people that, that are new to you that you're not used to speaking to. And you can see comprehension begin to break on people's face. And there was one little old black gal that was sitting over in the back to my left. And she was on the very last row, and I just praised God for it because she would have been a disturbance. She was so excited. She would sit on the edge of that seat and do both hands like this. She was so thrilled and so excited. And so I was standing there thinking, now, Lord, let this be a ministry of life to them. If folks leave this room and couldn't tell you one thing that I said, they couldn't order any information that I put out, but if they could leave the room knowing that they had been touched of the Holy Spirit and that they had a comprehension of His person that they didn't have when they walked in the room, then that's all right. That's a success. And the, the way to do that, or at least the results of that, I've observed, is that when people leave, they are more aware of the Lord than they are of the vessel that has ministered the life of the Lord to them. And I have come to see how vitally important that is, how vitally important it is. Because too many times we come out of the room being so impressed with the speaker and so uh, almost intimidated by the person that ministered to us that our attention is glossed over from the person of the Lord himself. But when the eyes of our understanding are enlightened, not his understanding or the understanding of the one who is speaking, but our understanding, when that happens, then we're able to walk in it. I've spoken with too many people that have tried to walk in another man's revelation. And that revelation may be true. It may be right what he has seen. But he has ministered his understanding and his revelation to people who have taken it and they've got the list of how to do it. They've gone home and they've checked off the list. They've implemented it this. If I say this and I do that, then thus and thus will happen. And what they've happened, their eyes have never been enlightened. They've never seen it. They just walk in what this other person has seen and they fall on their face in it. It has not been life to them. So the eyes of our understanding, our heart, as it says in this New American, be enlightened by the power of the Holy Spirit, by His sovereign work of grace. 
And when we have this, when we have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, and that comes about by having the eyes of our, our heart enlightened, then, as it says in Hebrews, we can go on to leave the principles, the beginning principles of life in Jesus, and go on to maturity. And it's that going on to maturity that brings us into the completion of what we're going to talk about this evening. By the way, if somebody else comes in, uh, Charlie, there's some chairs in that uh, closet right behind you. We can pull them out. <laughs> Come in. So we're in Ephesians 1, primarily looking now at verse 18. Now we're breaking in at verse 18, but you'll understand that this is a big sweep from about verse 15. Uh, he's beginning there. This is in part and particle of the same sentence. Now, having this spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him brought about by having the eyes of our understanding enlightened, then we are brought to understand the hope of his calling. All of this is in order that we may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saint, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now I'd like for us to concentrate our attention on those three groupings, the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now, first of all, let's talk about hope, the hope of his calling. What does the Bible mean when it talks about hope? You must understand that words that are used in the scriptures are not defined necessarily the way the world defines them. For example, love. The world has a sick, sweet, sentimental, selfish definition of love. You know, all the love songs are, I need you, I want you, I must have what's in it for I, I, I. And um, all of these things, it's not what the, the, the word means by love. It's quite a different definition. The love of God is fierce. It's fearsome and awesome. It's frightening. And the word hope is like that. Now, hope has gotten real bad press lately. There are no chairs in there? Oh, it's locked. There's some in that back room back over there. There's some chairs back there in that room if you want. Hope has gotten real bad press among Christian circles in recent years. And I can understand why. Because every time the Lord restores a truth to the church, we carry it to an extreme and have to come back to balance again. Uh, the church is just like a car. You constantly balance in a car between the yellow line down the middle of the road and the ditch on the other side of the road. You're constantly balancing. And the church is being constantly balanced by the Holy Spirit. Between one, we are creatures of extremes, and he's constantly balancing us by the Word of God. And the, we have uh, considered hope the way the world defines hope. The world says that, uh, well, we can only hope now. And what they mean is there is no hope left. When the world says this, we can only hope, they mean a, I hope, I hope, I hope. Um, I believe, I believe, I believe. They mean digging in with your fingers and your toenails when there is no hope and just hanging on. And that's not hope at all. The Most of what has been taught to the body of Christ within recent years that is defined as hope is in effect positive thinking. And there's nothing wrong with positive thinking as long as you understand that that's not a biblical concept. Positive thinking is good, but eventually you get tired of thinking positive and you're going to think negative. It's just inevitable. It's going to happen. So it's not holding on and holding on or trying to wring something out of God because you've got this bulldog tenacity that you've hung into him. That's not either. Hope in the biblical sense of the word is a true, certain, without possibility of error, 
unshakable truth. Hope is sort of the John the Baptist of faith. Uh, hope, you know, you cannot have faith until you have hope. Hope shows you something that is true down the line. It always speaks of the future. It speaks of something that is certain, something that is unshakable, something that is correct and undoubtedly will be. And until you have seen that, you have nothing for faith to establish itself on. For faith is a reaction to seeing who God is. And hope is that seeing of who God is and what God has said will surely, undoubtedly come to pass. Hope says it most certainly will. Let me read to you from Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10. This will be very familiar to you. Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10, speaking of Messiah, or rather Messiah himself is speaking. He says, therefore, well, let's back up to the... Um, well, let's back up to the seventh. There's no use wasting all this. It says, Psalm 16, 7, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I'll not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. The King James says, rest in hope, dwell securely. For thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol, or the place of the departed spirit, neither wilt thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. It speaks of hope in the mouth of Messiah as that certain, sure, steadfast Word of God that will be brought to pass. And once you have seen that certainty, faith springs forth spontaneously. I'm not sure if I've given my illustration of faith in this class or not. If it's on a tape previous to this, I apologize. I'm going to give it again. Uh, I was going to get my grandson a few, uh, well, about last year, I guess, or the year before. I was going to pick him up in, up above Ethel, Louisiana. And on the way up there, I was asking the Lord about this business of faith. I said, you know, Lord, I hear more about faith on the radio and in books and in churches and among teachers and I suppose I know less about it than I ever have in my life and I've heard more about it than I've ever heard in my life. Just exactly what is it anyway? I mean, you go down to the bookstore and there are shelves devoted to books that will explain faith to you. How to get it, how to work it, how to make it, how to lose it, just anything you want to know about faith. And yet people seem to be in more confusion about this than anything else. And instantly, I have an illustration. When the Spirit of God speaks to you, you know, He dumps something into your mind in a total. You take you a while to tell it, but you got it like that. And instantly, I realized if I had a friend of mine that she and her husband were unable to have children, but were having, were leaning themselves on God for the faithfulness of His promises for a family. And if I saw her after having not seen her in a good while, I'd say, well, how are you doing? She says, well, I'm doing good and there's no family yet, but I'm building my conception. I said, well, you know, that's good. That's part of having a family, all right. But uh, that's not the way to have a baby. The way to have a family is to know your husband. Conception is automatic. And that's the way it is with faith. In order to have faith, you see God. And in seeing God, your hope is realized for you see an unchanging certainty that will surely be and faith is the spontaneous result of that seeing of God it's not something you worked up 
It's not something you concentrated on. It's not something that you built. It is the automatic response of seeing and knowing God. The same way that conceiving is the automatic response to knowing your husband. And from that comes the family that you desire. And from faith, that automatic response of seeing God, who is the surely unsurpassed certain hope of what he is, that is the way those things come into being. Now, there have been more books written about how to get what you want out of God, how to write your own ticket with God, how to get this and how to get that. Now, I heard old Justin Cornwall say a few years ago, a statement I've never forgotten. He said, when God manifests himself in the presence of believers, nine times out of ten, if the man who is the pastor is a salvationist, he will openly declare God is among us and will save all the sinners in the building tonight. Just get on down here and he'll do it. And God will. No question about that. If he is one who has seen the revelation of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he'll say God will baptize everyone in the Holy Spirit tonight. God is present to baptize. Get on down here. And God will do it. And he certainly will. Or if he has seen the revelation of the healing that is in Christ for us, he'll say God will heal everyone who will get down to this altar. God will heal you tonight. He is present. The power of the Holy Spirit is among us. And the Lord will certainly do it. But Cornwall says, you know, it's the most peculiar thing to me. It's almost, instead of saying God is among us in manifested presence, let us worship him. And in the worshiping, uh, in the presence of the worshiping congregation, people are born again, baptized in the Holy Spirit, healed, delivered. All of those things take place. But it's almost like we say God is present among us. Let's throw a harness on him and work him. Now, that is what has been taught to the body of Christ and had the label of faith to put on it. It is how to work God, how to get what you want out of God's pockets. And of course, he's reluctant to give it to you. It takes a lot of effort. And I said, Lord, I don't understand that because when people follow the principles that these particular teachings uh, suggest, they do get what they're asking for. Not all of them, but many of them do. And I saw that those principles will work if that's all you want. But it takes a 100% mindset of devotion to those principles. And if you turn your attention to anything else or waver, you have missed the boat. And so you have no attention left for the worship and the contemplation of the person of the Son of God himself. You've got to put your full attention on getting what you want. And you can do that. But you do that at the expense of the contemplation and the understanding of God himself. It's like the scripture says over in Psalms, when the people lusted after meat in the wilderness, they were questioning God's ability. They said, what you got in your ice box? You do pretty good with, you know, with Red Seas and stuff, but what can you do out here? And it says that God gave them their desire, but he sent leanness to their souls. Now, there's a lot of people that are getting their desires, but they are getting along with it leanness to their soul. And the getting of your wants at the expense of the health of your uh, relationship with Jesus is no advance, no advance whatsoever. Hope is not to be scorned. You can't have faith until you have hope. Hope reveals the certainty of who God is. 
Hope shows you what God undoubtedly will do. That is not to be questioned. There's no possibility that it will not be. And when that is seen, your faith can spring forth spontaneously. Faith is the evidence of things that are not seen. It is that perfect confidence that God who has said it is the God who is able to bring it to pass. And so I relax and lie down into God. The story is told of a man who was the associate pastor of E.W. Kenyon. Is it E.W. Kenyon? Yeah. Fine, man. If you're not familiar with Kenyon, I recommend his, his work. Very, very good. But this man, who was an associate of E.W. Kenyon, uh, in fact, was his assistant pastor, had a very dreadful disease that was a deterioration of the nerve endings within the skin, on the surface of the skin. And it was a very painful thing, and it was the, they could uh, treat it and alleviate some of the pain, but there was no known cure for it. And he happened to be in Canada when he had a severe attack. Of this, this disease would go into a mission flight and then would attack him. And it was so severe. With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. He was hospitalized. And he was told, what he overheard while he was rather in a coma, that he overheard the doctor saying that his chances were very slim to survive this particular attack. And he tells the story this way. He says that he was so tired and in such pain that he said, Lord, he said, I cannot believe you anymore for my healing. I am too tired, I am too weak, and I am too weary. I'm going to lie down in your arms and rest now. And when I come out of this bad attack, I will believe you once again. But I can't believe you now. I am too sick, I am too tired. I just give it all up to you until later when I will believe again. And he woke up, came out of the coma, and was healed, mad as a wet hen. Because he said, how can I go home and testify of the healing that God brought to me when I quit believing? Now, you see, that man saw something of God. He saw God, the all-sufficient health of his own body. He saw God who is well able to bring to pass the promises that he speaks. And he gave up and rested himself in the arms of such an all-sufficient God without any attempt to help him, without any attempt to cause him to do anything. He lay down and rested. He says, I give it all up. What I live or die is in your hands. But I know who you are. You're worthy of being trusted. I lay down and sleep. Later on, I'll help. And he was healed. I know another man 
who was leaving his office early one morning and a woman came in and she had had a small mole to appear on her face and she didn't think very much of it until it began to get larger. She went to the doctor and it was diagnosed as a melanoma on her face. And a melanoma is the most deadly form of cancer because it is the cancer of the skin, which is the largest organ of the body, and it covers the whole body. And uh, so she was in desperate straits. This man had an appointment, could not minister to her at any length of time. He was waiting for a plane to leave. He said, I cannot talk with you now. I will later. He laid hands on her, prayed for her healing, left to catch his plane. She went home that afternoon, sneezed, and the thing fell off. She was healed of the melanoma. The next week, he went to the doctor for his yearly checkup. He was, the doctor discovered on his back a growth that he had not seen because it was on his back. They did the autopsy, rather the biopsies and the test. It was uh, confirmed to be melanoma. And he was, uh, had gone to such an extent they were going to do surgery, but they could offer him only a two or three percent chance of survival. It was almost cut and dried that he would die. He was put into the hospital in a ward where everyone that was in that ward had the uh, melanoma and almost everyone died that was in that ward. And he lay in that bed facing the fact that he was a young man and was probably going to die if the doctors were correct. He said that uh, many came to him and said, well, why don't you just believe for your faith and don't go to the doctor? He says, we believe for healing with your melanoma. I'm taking mine to the hospital. So he went in the hospital. He said one night a nurse came in and uh, tapped him on the shoulder and sat down and asked, was he such and such a pastor? He said he was. She said, well, she said, preacher, she says, I'm an atheist. I want to know, how does it feel to know you're going to die? I've always wanted to see a Christian die. How does it feel, preacher, to die? And he said, he looked at her and he said, if you mean to die this minute and step into eternity, I am ready. I am not afraid of death. But if you mean a long, slow dying of a disease like cancer, I am scared to death of that and I don't, I'm not afraid to admit it. Said she laughed and she left. She said, I'll be back to see you, preacher, and see how you die. He said it so upset him, it finally fell in on him that he was actually dying when this woman left. He said he got up and he left and went into the bathroom. The only place in that ward you could be by yourself. said he got down on his knees on that ceramic tile and he began to pour out the unutterable gushings of his heart. And he spoke to God of all that was within him, all his fears, all his frustrations, all that didn't seem to be fair. He said he finally progressed from that, pouring out all that he had until he found himself beginning to worship God. He had nothing else to say. And so he began to worship the God who healed. He said he worshiped the Lord for a while and finally such confidence overtook him that he was satisfied to live or die as God would direct. His confidence was not in getting something from God but was in the God who supplied all things. He went back and went to bed. They did the surgery and he's alive today. He said when he quit wanting to be healed because he was scared to die and concentrated on worshiping the God who heals, the Lord healed him. I believe there's a physical principle involved in that. I believe that in that relaxation comes about the very chemical changes within the body that God set in order and creation that brings about the very healing within our bodies under the power of the Holy Spirit that we're desiring to have. I believe that when you relax, and only you can relax in the 
presence of the God who is all sufficient. Because of the hope that you have seen in him, can your faith spring forth? I believe that in that relaxing, the subconscious mind is able to cooperate with the power of the Holy Spirit within our physical body and bring about those chemical changes from within that God set in order in our bodies at creation. I believe that more healings would come forth if we would learn how to relax in the arms of the God who heals. Because we have hope, because the John the Baptist of faith, hope, has gone before and has cleared the way. It has gone before us and taken away all of our brothers, all of the things that we want above all things else, and left us with nothing but our eyes filled with the God who is able to do all that he said. And I believe in that atmosphere of praise and worship to him, chemical reactions take place in the body. Hope is a Bible word. It's not a word that we should be ashamed of it. For we have hope. The Bible says that those who are without hope, in the words, uh, he says over in chapter 2, he said that we were in the world without hope in the world. We were alienated from hope, alienated in, in our original condition from all that God is and all that he has promised. You consider without hope. There is a cold steel death nail that makes me, it has an aura about those words, without hope in the world. And yet, in our original condition, that's the way we are. But the hope of his calling, that sure, unchanging, steadfast, to be certain will come about of his calling. And what is his calling? God sends forth an external call to all. The scripture says, Daddy quoted the scripture last week, I believe, that many are called and few are chosen. I was teaching last week, uh, and I was dealing with, uh, last Thursday, I was dealing with these great words of the faith, election and predestination, and introducing them to some people who had never met them before. And uh, it was, you could see, man, their, their, their brow was all furrowed, and they had creases in their face, and all. And uh, we spoke of the fact that God sends forth the call, for he's not left himself without witness, that God commands men everywhere to repent. It is not an offer. It is not an invitation. It's a command. But man cannot repent until he receives that inward call that comes solely by the grace of God, with no merit in the one who receives him. The man cannot, no man can respond to this call that God sends forth to all creation without the grace of God meeting him in his lost condition, alienated from God, an enemy of God, in the pit of the degradation of the fall of Adam. No man can respond to that call of God until God does a supernatural work in him to enable him to respond to that call. And then that's very heavy, heavy thinking. And very alien to many of our concepts of God. Our, we, our God is too small. We have our God reduced to where we can handle him. And we need to have our mind stretched a little bit to this one who is beyond comprehension in the confines of our own thought processes. God has issued forth a call to all men. Now the fact that those men are unable because of the set of their nature, they will not choose to come to that call in no way invalidates the call itself. God has commanded that men everywhere repent. 
And though man, by cause of the set of his nature, will refuse to repent and refuse that call of God, in no way makes God responsible for the fact that they did refuse the call. In fact, that anyone responds to the call of God at all is a miracle of major proportion. For God has had to work within the heart of that man the grace that came before revelation in order for him to see, to have his eyes open, his eyes bring about an understanding. This hope that comes before this calling, the hope of his calling, is that which assures us and deepens our faith and trust in God. It is that sure, steadfast, immovable certainty that the calling of God upon us is real. How many times have you ever been faced with the question, are you really born again? Look deep within your own heart. Were you really sincere? I mean, what of this? This one, this is the biggie. What if you live all of your life and come to death only to discover it was all a joke. It was all wrong. Have you ever had that lie whispered in your ear? Oh, and it's so plausible when it's whispered, you know. What if all, I mean, you could be out there ripping it up with the rest of the sinners having a high old What if you go through all of your life and come down to the wire and find out that you were wrong all along? What if you were thought that you submitted yourself to God and you thought that you really received Jesus, but you really didn't, because after all, no one can really know themselves. What if you're really not saved? What if, and that thought just begins to pound in your mind, and you look inside and begin to investigate, and of course, when you look inside, you find nothing but flesh, and it's wormy, just like it was the last time you looked at it, and you quickly become convinced, oh my God, I probably am not saved. After all, I did that and I did this, I'm probably not saved. The hope of his calling is that steadfast, immovable, bedrock assurance that the fact I am even questioning, the fact that I have a desire for God is itself the greatest evidence that I have responded to that call within. It hadn't been just a general call on me that I acknowledged the truth and the rightness of it, but it is a specific inward call because were it not, you would have no hunger and thirst for righteousness. You would not be upset at sin in your life. It would be no problem to you. It, it, would, it, it would be nothing that would cause you to be concerned at all. You know, Matthew chapter 5, you know where it gives all the, what we call the Beatitudes? A few years ago, I realized that the Beatitudes, you know, you know the blessed are the those and blessed are the these, the Beatitudes is not a standard for us to attain to. It's not something to shoot for, that one day I will be like that. But that passage of Scripture is... In fact, a full-length description of who we are. It is the description of the Blessed Company. And the, uh, the, one of the descriptions of the Blessed Company says you are obviously one of the Blessed Company because you mourn over sin. Only the Blessed Company mourns over sin. It's a word that indicates an attitude. I mourn over sin not because of the penalty that that sin might bring to me. But I mourn over that sin because of the insult and the affront that it is to my God. 
that makes a lot of difference. Those who are not of the blessed company do not mourn over sin. It, it indicates a mindset that grieves over sin, not for my sake, but for God's sake. It's that mindset that stands in behalf of the whole body of Christ to, to, to grieve over the condition of the church, having seen what God has called us to and seeing where we are, that causes to mourn over it for God's sake, that causes us to pray in effect, Lord, for your name's sake do this, not in order that we not suffer and that we have a high old time, but in order that your holy name be not insulted in the mouth of the heathen. It's the attitude of the blessed company. And the very fact, there was a woman who came to me Monday night. I, I told them that when I got through teaching, I would take questions, possibly. And that uh, the rules of my taking questions would be that I would answer only those that I wanted to answer. And uh, that was the only rule. And some questions, you know, I've got six-hour uh, six tape series out on, or uh, some questions would be redundant, or some, you know, you've got to pick and choose. And some out they'll ask me, and I'll say, I just don't want to answer that one next. <laughs> Uh, or some I have to say I can't answer that one. But there was, I said, I will take questions at the end of the meeting. Well, when it was all over, it was not conducive to taking questions. So I said, if there's someone who just has to have a question addressed, meet me down here at the front of the room after the meeting. Well, one woman came down and sat down. Her name is Sharon. And Sharon was concerned about the lack of progress that she saw in her life. And she was very torn up about it. And I was so amused because I had been seeing these very same things in my own life recently. And I said, you know, Lord, I said, I believe the problem is here that I am, I, well, I saw some, one time long ago that I really expected to get better. I kept thinking my flesh was going to get better one day. And I was going to, by the osmosis, you know, just by association, I was going to get better. And it never got better. And every time I looked back at my flesh or every time I stepped back into it, it rose up at the initial or highest peak of strength. It never got weaker. It never got better. And I guess I said, I, I said, Lord, I think the problem is that I expect not to want to sin anymore. And I'm, I'm assuming guilt not for sinning necessarily, but for wanting to sin. It's sort of like prevenient guilt, you know, guilt before guilt. I am assuming guilt because I want to sin, and I think if I was really a good Christian, I wouldn't want to sin. And I rationally know the reverse of that is true, but emotionally, I don't understand that. My emotions will not respond to the rationale that sin is sin, and, and I'm always going to want to sin, and always have sin available to me. But it's that now I have the ability, because of the new nature of God within me, to say no to sin. Where before I was born again, I had no choice. I sinned. And now I have the choice to say yes or no to it. But she sat down and was having these same problems. And I said, you know, I said, it's that the very fact that you desire to be like God, the very fact that you desire to mature, should be the most encouraging thing in your life. Because without that, there would be no evidence at all of God within your, within your, uh, God's nature within your life. And so instead of being despondent over the fact that you hunger and thirst over righteousness, as it says in Matthew 5, blessed are you, you are obviously one of the blessed ones because you hunger and thirst over righteousness. And the more that hunger and thirst is satisfied, the more it will deepen until it becomes a dissatisfied satisfaction. 
and it's not on the one hand you're satisfied, but on the other hand the very fact of your satisfaction, satisfaction dissatisfies you more because you see that there is more to be had and it's, it's sort of a, a constant undenating balance there. And so it is one of the evidences that you are the called of God because you have a desire not only to please God, but not to insult Him by sin. You are that one that has had the call of God put on you and the response of God put within you in order that you might look at that calling, that sure, steadfast hope as a foundation. Now the hope of His calling, the sureness of His calling, gives us an unmovable rock that we stand on. It's not something that we think it's not something that we surmise. It's not a wishy-washy thing. It is because our eyes have been enlightened. It is because we've been given a spirit of wisdom and revelation. We know of his calling. And what has that calling brought itself about to be? It's a high calling, it says in Philippians 3.14. It's a holy calling, 2 Timothy 1.9. It's a heavenly calling in 3.1. That calling is something that we have never, ever really seen. Not as a body and whole. Individuals have begun to grasp some of these things. But as a body, we have not. We are coming into it. For we have never yet appropriated or appreciated the call of God in the union of Christ Jesus. We constantly think of ourselves as Him here and us here. And we are unable as a mindset to see ourselves in union with God. The scripture says over in the third chapter of Ephesians that God has revealed his many-faceted wisdom in the church, by the church. He has called us to be in union with himself. You see, Jesus didn't come and humble himself to our level in order to leave us there. But he came, humbled himself by taking on human flesh, became a human being in order to lift us to another place. Now, we're not to be where we were found. That's not our dwelling place. We have been called with a calling that is so high, so holy, that we are embarrassed to acknowledge or even to think of the implications. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. For God has called us into the Godhead. And I realize that that's very hard to think. But that is true. You see, 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in eternal, sweet, pleasant, enjoyable fellowship among himself, needing nothing, not having any lack at all, for reasons of his own that he has not chosen to disclose, decided to create. What he created did not take anything from him, and what he created will not add anything to him. What was he doing? He was loving himself, for he is the high and the only perfect, and it is only right that he should love himself. There is none higher to love. And God has called us not simply to labor and to keep our hand to the plow and to walk. He has called us into himself, not just unto himself, which would speak of us coming so far and then there being us and there being God. But God has called us into himself. He has actually called us into the very trinity, the triunity of his being. And it's not that there is a fourth man in the Godhead now. There is, we are in Christ in the Godhead now. It's not Jesus here and me here. It's us as a totality. We are in him. And what are we doing? We are beholding the perfections of himself and adoring and loving him as he is his own self. What in us would be an ego trip is right in God. For there is none higher to love. There is none more high nor perfect to be adored. There is none more right and holy to be worshipped than himself. And so we, along with himself, are fellowshipping together. That word fellowship means to drink out of the same cup. It means to take our sustenance from the same place, to be sustained from the same source. There's not too many I drink out of the same cup with. Maybe my young ones, if they brush their teeth. You know, you just don't. I mean, that indicates intimacy. It indicates union. So close is the union that God has used a man and a woman as one of these pictures. It is a union whereby he said they become one flesh. They become each a half of a whole. It's not the man or the woman. It's not one better or, and one less. It's not one higher and one lower. It is equal but different. Each one making up for the, what is lacking in the other. So we can see that union in a man and a wife. You, you can see it, it's so marvelous that God took something out of Adam. And he called, and I got something that he took out of Adam. He took more than just, just a bone, a cell. He took something that was Adam within Adam. Adam was a total and a complete. But God separated Adam and put Adam into two bodies. And how often we try to make the other part in our marriage like us. And we try to make our husband female and we can't understand why he doesn't react like a woman. And our husband says, I do not understand that woman. She doesn't think right. I mean, she doesn't react like me. And instead of valuing the differences between ourselves, we try to conform one another so that we'd be all female or we'd be all male. And that's not the way it is. It's different. And the differences are the beauty of it. But in the picture of the uh, man and the woman, Jesus says, this is a picture, says Paul, of Christ and the church. And you live with one another long enough to eventually some couples start looking like each other. You notice that? They begin to favor. They fought like each other for so long. And you know what you look like on the outside is largely indicated by the way that you think on the inside. 
and they become to get you know they, they begin to favor each other look more like brother and sister than husband and wife and they become so used to one another that they can predict the reaction within one another to a given set of circumstances there are some things that they don't even have to say out loud their conversation is going on from spirit to spirit they just know each other and we have been brought into union with Jesus Christ. The church is not something that God has done as a stopgap measure. It is not a parenthesis, and I resent greatly that concept of a parenthetical church. The church has been in God's mind before the foundation of the world. The church is it. It's what God has always been doing and what God will eternally do is in the church. It is the bride. It is the, uh, that, that, I don't mean to be, uh, please, I say this with, uh, with great respect and awe of the holiness of God, and I do not mean to, uh, please listen to me carefully and try not to misunderstand me. It's not that God lacks something and needs the church by any means. God has taken something of himself and separated it from himself. God himself, bringing himself to himself in love and affection, and we have been brought into the Godhead. The hope of his calling is that he has humbled himself to become a human being, to die for the sin of the whole world, and to gather us up in Jesus Christ and to bring us up to himself. And we speak, and it is though God himself is speaking. Remember what John said, uh, was it last Sunday? said he went in, heard the kids talking back to uh, Janice, and he went in there and told them, said, you can't, you know, you can't talk to me like that. They said, Daddy, we didn't talk to you. We were talking to Mama. He said, she talks to me, and when you talk to Mama, you talk to me. Remember when he was talking about that? Well, you see, that's what it says over here in Psalms 2. Look, if you will, at Psalms 2. I feel like my mind brushes around the borders of this thing, of, of, of what God has called us to. And it's so much that you want to back off and say, oh, well, I'm so unworthy, which, of course, is true in yourself. But we're seeing ourselves in Jesus. And in Jesus, he is the ultimately, completely worthy one. And in him, we are worthy. It says in Psalms 2, it starts out by saying, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? It talks about the same thing it says in Romans 1, that men didn't like to retain the knowledge of God. They said, let's break his feathers fetters off of us. The chains, they thought God's love was chains binding them. And verses 1 through 3 is what resulted in the crucifixion. Men said, we'll take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. Let's tear their fetters apart. They considered the love that God put upon them as, uh, as limiting for them. I mean, God is keeping us back from real fulfillment. They didn't want to trust him. But it says that the Lord that sits in the heavens laughed at him. He said, puny man, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are, old man, that can tear off God? And he said he'll speak to them in his anger and his fury. That was the crucifixion. God spoke to mankind in anger and fury in the person of Jesus Christ when he poured out his wrath and his holy anger when Jesus was declared to be sin. And then the Messiah speaks. You know, thousands, uh, I guess it was thousands, hundreds of years anyway before Messiah was actually birthed into uh, the world. He spoke through the, uh, the uh, prophet David. He said, but for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now, we know who that is. The king that God has installed is Jesus Christ, resurrected. And the place he has installed him is in our hearts. 
For we are Zion. We're the place where God lives. We're the indwell. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit now. It's the place where God lives in freedom and in liberty. And he says, I'll tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you're my son. Today I've begotten you. That was the day Jesus rose from the dead was when he was begotten of God up from out of death. And he said, now you ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possessions, and you will break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. And then he goes on to say, now you better watch your step, earth. You better watch your step, man. Kiss the sun. And that's another word for worship. It means... It means to adore toward, kiss the sun, lest he be angry with you and, and squash you like a bug. I mean, God, you're dealing with eternal, uncreated God here. But the, the, the terminology here switches from God the Father to God the Son uh, to the church. And all three are speaking here. And it's as though the Lord says to the Messiah, he says, now I've installed you. I've placed you at a position of high exaltation. Now I want you to ask me, and I'm going to give you what you want. He says, man, I have brought you to myself in the person of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to reign and rule in the earth, and I am going to rule with a rod of iron, and I have decreed that I will do it through the church. I don't have to do it through the church. I am not limited to the church, but I have chosen to voluntarily limit myself to my people, and I will have a people. I will have a people who will be willing in the day of my power and will do all that my heart desires to do, and they will be willing. Now, I want you to know, church, what it's like to be God. I have brought you into myself. All that I am belongs to you. All that I am is yours for the asking. But I'm, I'm going to do it. I decree that I will do this and so. But I will do it through the vessel of my choosing. Now ask me. And I'm going to do it. You ever wondered why you had to pray? Why you had to pray if God's going to do it anyhow? How come I'm going to pray? He's going to do it anyhow. And he's going to do it through you. That's his decree. He will do it. He says, I want you to know. I want you to reign and rule. I want you to be on earth as God himself. Now ask me. Now, before you ask, you've got to find out what he wants. That's what prayer is all about. Prayer isn't, isn't, you know, once you find out what God wants, you just speak it out. That's it. Prayer is the finding out. It's the causing of myself to come into such conformity with his mind and his thoughts that I can receive the mind of God. And when I receive God's mind, then I speak it forth as God himself in time. I speak it forth and God says, that's it, that's it, that's what we're going to do. That's what I decided I was going to do. That's it, speak it out, speak it out. I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it through you. The high calling of God in Christ Jesus We've not broached it. We've not begun to appreciate what God has called us to. So many of us think, well, you know, I'm, I'm not much in the kingdom. I'm not a preacher and I'm not a teacher. And, you know, I get all hot and sweaty when I try to witness like they told me to. And, and you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not really much. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, you see, the real ministry takes place unseen by eyes. It speaks in Ephesians about the fivefold gift ministry here. It says that he ascended on high and, he, and in verse 8 he gave uh, captivity captive. He gave gifts to men. Remember John has been preaching about that, about the gifts that he gave. These gifts are people themselves. He gave some prophets and evangelists, some pastors and teachers, uh, you know, all that he did. And this is why he gave these people as gifts. To equip the saints 
for the work of service. What is that work of service? The building up of the body of Christ. And what's it for? To attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You see, the church does the ministry. Not the preachers, not the prophets, not the apostles, not the evangelists, not the pastors and the teachers. No, no, the church does the ministry. Those giftings, those people who are the gifts themselves, are the gifts to the church in order that the church might be built up in order to be mature, that they may reign and rule as co-region of God on earth. Kind of blows your mind, doesn't it? And that reigning and ruling is not done in the tent before thousands. That's not it. That reigning and ruling is done when you're by yourself on your face before God, finding out what his mind is and once finding it out, speaking it into actuality. That's the reigning and the ruling. He said you will reign in the midst of your enemies. He didn't say you reign over your enemies. He said you reign in the midst of your enemies. Did you notice how Jesus reigned in the midst of his enemies? Follow him from Gethsemane all the way through the illegal trial, all the way to Pilate, all the way to... And see, he was in charge in the midst of his enemies. They thought they had him. They thought they had him like a rat in a trap. He was the only one who had his head on his shoulders. He himself was in charge. And even on the cross, he prolonged his life until every single thing was done. And when he was plumb, good, and finished, then he dismissed his spirit. Nobody killed him. Nobody took his life from him. He reigned and he ruled in the midst of his enemies. And you and I do the same thing. An overcomer is not somebody who breezes through life with no problems, casting out demons and stepping on the devil's toes. No, 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 that's not it. may involve that, but that's not it. An overcomer is one who is in the midst of the world but is unsullied and unspotted by the filth of this world. They walk in the midst of trouble without yielding to trouble. They walk in the midst of pressure without laying down and letting it roll over them. They walk in the midst of anything that anybody else does, and more than most, and yet... They are unaffected. They do not respond in kind. Somebody comes up and slaps you in the face, you want to slap them back. There's nothing wrong with that. You would be less, you didn't, you know, you wouldn't have any character if you didn't want to slap them back. But it's that we, it's not that we don't retaliate, but we don't retaliate in kind. In the same way that we are attacked, we don't retaliate in that way. We have a different mindset. Someone reaches out and does us evil. We react, but we react not from the same platform of anger that they reacted to us, that they attacked us. Bitterness, meanness, uh, hatred. No, no, no. We don't react in that way. If somebody does you dirt, you do them dirt back, you are no better than they, you retaliated from the very same platform that they did. It's not that you've got to lay there and let them step all over you. Sure you retaliate, but not from the same platform. Somebody breaks in my house and starts beating up on me. My husband sits over in the chair and says, well, God bless you, brother. Big deal, man. Get up and mash his nose in. It's, it's that we don't retaliate from the same platform. We reign and we rule in the midst of our enemies from a different mindset. His calling has called us to be in charge in the earth today. 
And that doesn't mean that we're running the government. doesn't mean we're telling the storm when to blow and when not to. It's not any of those things. It's that we walk through life as a real human being with all of the failings and tendencies as any human being does. And in the power of the Spirit of God, we walk as the very oracle and mouthpiece of God and we, our mind and his mind is on the same plane and we are him walking here in different bodies of human flesh speaking forth his mind and his will. We are reigning and we are ruling in the midst of our enemies. It's a high calling. The hope of his calling, the steadfast certainty of it, unchanging, cannot be changed. And because of that, we are aware of the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You see, we are an inheritance to God. We are something for him. Have you ever considered how special you are. At what expense God went to to get you? Think of it. God beggared heaven to purchase you from his wrath to his love. We say Jesus paid it all. He did. Who did he pay it to? Well, he sure didn't pay it to the devil. For we were not under the devil's son. We were only subject to the devil because we were sold to the wrath of God by Adam's action. Remember the story of the man who owed a king a great debt, something he couldn't pay back in 20 lifetimes? And the, he, the king called in the debt, and the man said, I, I can't, I, I just give me time and I'll pay it. Well, it was ridiculous. The man couldn't ever pay it. It's in Matthew and a couple of the gospels. The man could never pay that debt. And it says the king frankly, frankly forgave him. Remember that servant went out and found somebody that owed him about $20 and threatened to, you know, threw him in jail till he paid it. But the, the, the point of the story I want to point out is when that king forgave him that debt, who was that debt paid to? The debt was paid. Who, did, who paid the debt? The king paid the debt. And who did he pay it to? He paid it to himself. You see, we owed God. We owed him. God paid our debt for us. Who did he pay it to? We paid it to himself. Jesus purchased us from the wrath of God in order that the love of God might rest upon us. What expense God went to to bring us to himself. It's, it's unthinkable. It really is unthinkable to think that God, that debt has to be paid, else it's, not, it's still a debt. And he paid it to himself. He paid what he did not owe to himself that it was owed to. It was your debt and my debt. And he paid it himself from himself by himself in order that he might gather to himself what belonged to him. We belong to God doubly. First of all, because he created us. And second of all, because he brought us back to himself. And he could only do that by becoming one of us. We are his. God has an inheritance in us. Sometimes I get discouraged. I get full of self-pity and I look around and I say, I get what I call the Elijah syndrome. You know, it's just you and me, God. Everybody's going straight to hell in a handbasket. Nobody's left but the two of us. And I have to be reminded that what God has purchased from himself for himself, he is in no business of losing. God's going to hold on to what is. 
belongs to him. It's expensive and it is worthwhile and we have yet to begin to comprehend our worth to God. You realize what he has invested in us, what he has placed within us. We have indwelling us the very nature of God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. Why? It's something you can't get your mind stretched around. The, the riches. Now, it didn't say the riches of his inheritance. It said the riches of his glory. The glory that is in his saints, his inheritance, the riches of that glory. And for us to understand that, you know the story of the, the shepherd of the 99 that went out and got the poor lost sheep? I'll, I'll always be grateful to the man I heard say. He always heard preached all his life that, you know, the poor little sheep was out there bleeding and God, the, I mean, the shepherd felt sorry for the sheep and he went out there to get him and bring him back. And poor little sheepy, he said, oh, no, no, that wasn't it at all. He said the shepherd went to get the sheep because that was his sheep. He had money invested in that thing. It was his investment. He wasn't fixing to be robbed of what belonged to him. And God went to get us, not because we was bleeding so pitifully. There was nothing in us to stir up the affections of God because his affections cannot be stirred up. They are a totality themselves. But God went to get us because we belong to him. He's got an investment in us. He is not about to be robbed of what rightfully belongs to him. It's the same thing with the woman that lost the coin. Why did the woman sweep the house for the coin? Not because the coin was lying under the table, pitifully crying out, find me, find me. Well, no, indeed. It was her coin. Man, that was money in the bank. That was her dowry. That was her retirement fund, if you will. If her husband kicked the bucket, she didn't have anything to live on but that money. That was it. And so it was her money, and she was not going to be robbed of it. And she swept the whole house. She worked until she was sweating and perspiring. She moved everything. She reached under everything. She went to great lengths to get her coin. And God, in Jesus Christ, went to great lengths and great expense, unspeakable expense that we may never through the eternities fully understand, to get back what belonged to him. That's you and me. Do you think once he went to all that trouble, he's going to let us slip through his fingers? No, indeed not. What kind of a character do you think that God has? They would be so careless with what cost him so much. Or we are his. We are his inheritance. We belong to him. He has called us with a high and a holy calling because we are so valuable to him. And he said, now, I want the eyes of your understanding to be enlightened. So you can know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. In pidgin English, they call that surpassing plenty too much. And I like that. I think that's the best explanation that can be given. Plenty too much. Watchman Lee said that he had tuberculosis and, and he was in a certain town in uh, China and he met one of his old professors. And they went to a tea shop to visit and, and he said he, Lee was in very bad physical condition at the time. So the professor looked at him and shook his head. He said, Me? said, You were one of the most promising students of the university. Your mind had the sharpness and the clarity that could comprehend and retain great information. An intellect that had great promise. He said, And you have absolutely wasted yourself on this Jesus. He said, At first, it just stripped him. It just struck him and pierced him so bad. There he was. Many of those who were his inferiors in the university had gone on to great uh, positions of importance and influence and uh, monetary gains. And, and, and there he was, sick in his body, 
feeble, with nothing to show for his life, and he who had been the student with the most promise, that it, it just it just slumped. And then all of a sudden he realized that that man had unknowingly poured on him the greatest compliment he had ever received. To think that he would be permitted to waste himself on Jesus. To waste is to go too much. The Bible says here in Ephesians that God has lavished on us. He has lavished on us his grace and his love. Lavish is too much. It's a waste. Uh, it's Now, let's don't be ridiculous about this. Let's use a little common sense. Let's save some for later. It's like the woman that broke the alabaster box and she lavished on Jesus the sweetness of that perfume. It was a total waste. And the disciples griped about it. They said, you know, that's not fair. We could have sold at least we could have sold a box and got some money. We could have done something important with it. No, she wasted. That box could never be used again to anoint anybody but Jesus. That perfume was so much that it couldn't soak in. It ran all down. She lavished on him. Wasted it. Watchman Nee said to think that he would be permitting to give God too much. Could you ever give God too much? Is it possible to give him too much? He who owns everything, to whom all love and adoration, worship belong. The surpassing greatness of his power. God has wasted himself on you and I. He has not been economical. He has not given us just enough. But he has given us an abundance. He has lavished on us the surpassing greatness of his power that dwells within us, who is toward us who believe. That word believe is not a thing in the past. It's not a word that's in the past. It's in the ever-present who are believing, who are in the process, the continuing process of believing day by day. The great power of God that was within us. He goes on to describe it, and we're going to talk about that next week. So I'm, I'm tempted, but I'm not going to get into that. He gives an illustration of the greatness of that power. This past week, I've been stumbled, tripped up, by my flesh. This week, I have had a, a glimpse into the worminess of myself. This week, I have stepped into what I thought I was through with. I really thought that I, I, I had come through that, that I, I, was, I wouldn't step back into that, and I have. And I was so devastated, so disgusted, I wanted to just quit. You ever want to just quit on God? Just quit. I'm just tired of the whole bitch. Just won't quit. I thought I was better than that. I didn't think I'd get back into that. And I did. And I did it not because I was tripped up in the sense that it wasn't my fault. I deliberately chose to. It was the fact that I chose to that upset me so bad. And I knew that I was doing it. And I stood here before y'all a few weeks ago and spoke about sin being saying that God doesn't exist because we do it in, in His sight. We've done this evil in thy sight. That sin actually says, God, you don't exist. The fool hath said in his heart, no God. And I stepped right back into something that I thought I was finished with. And I was so devastated. I wasn't upset with God necessarily, but I was so disgusted with myself. I, I thought I'd come a little further than that. Well, I hadn't. And I realized that it wasn't God's fault. He didn't bring it about, but since it happened anyway, he was letting me see a little peek into the depths of the depravity of man. I need to know that. 
I need to know how far I was and how I am one step from it. But I can always step back into the flesh anytime I want to. It's there. It's available. And it devastated me. I had the pip for days, just for days. So disgusted with life. So, and to have to prepare to teach other people the unsearchable riches of God, knowing what an absolute jackass I made out of myself. And it wasn't, didn't help me out any that nobody else knew about it. I knew about it. I knew it. And I knew God forgave me. I had enough sense to call out on him immediately and seek forgiveness, but I didn't feel any better. I felt just as mean and filthy and low down and cruddy as before I asked him to forgive me. I knew I was forgiven. And it was the hardest thing in this world to forgive myself. Now, I have to forgive myself because to retain self-pity or guilt says, well, Lord, you can forgive me, but my standards are higher than yours. I have to forgive myself, lest I attempt to make myself more righteous than God. But I want you to know, it puts your nose in the carpet, in the carpet, to see what apart from God we are, and yet to acknowledge that He Himself within me is the power to walk in freedom from sin. But the minute I loose myself from him by choice. I don't have to gradually go back down to it. I'm there. I'm there. I didn't have to work myself into it. I was there instantly. And the knowledge that though he has supplied me with the power and is himself all that is necessary to walk in this life in victory and in holiness, it is in him. It is not in me. It is in Him and in Him alone. And when I have walked in Him and looked back on it, I have no, nothing to preen my feathers about. I have nothing to pat myself on the back about. It's seeing the grace of God, friends. It is seeing the grace of God. And it is a death process each time. I find that I am so arrogant. I am so arrogant with others who are so weak to fall back into sin with those who have such ignorance of the word of God that unlike me they are unable to walk in this high calling that God has called us to don't talk to me about any levels as the old fellow says the ground of the cross is all level and we don't ever get any place else that's our position at the foot of the cross and it is only in the apprehending of these truths, by the opening of our eyes, that we are able to relax and to lie down in the arms of God and acknowledge it's all of Him. It is all of Him. And knowing that He Himself has placed us in Christ Jesus, that we might walk in this surpassing greatness, this beautiful calling that is so rich that His inheritance to think that he values me when I look at my sin. Now you see, nine times out of ten, we don't really look at our sin. But the Lord in his mercy will allow us to look at it from his viewpoint and with his eyes. And sin becomes exceedingly sinful, as the scripture says. Exceedingly sinful. And to realize that it's all of him 
and none of us. There is a, an assurance in that. There, you'd think it'd be security the other way, but there's, it's not. It's the most restful thing to know that I am saved by the grace of God, kept by the power of God, in order that I might walk in the life of Jesus Christ and that he become, he is, as it says in Colossians, my life. It says, Christ who is our life. We don't get life from him in little dips and dreads. He is our life. He is it. He is our source of existence. God has called us to this. And he put a name on this body of blessed ones. The church. The reflection of he who is all wisdom. The hope of his calling. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And the greatness of his power who dwells in us who believe that we might walk out the calling by the power of the Spirit to the riches that God says that we are. It's it's amazing. It's really amazing. All these things are true. All of these things belong in the realm of everyday existence because God has revealed it to us. We can see it. We can relax in it and rest in it. Time was when I would have been so devastated, it would have taken me weeks and weeks to get my mind working back to where God could receive me. But while studying this, I've seen more and more that I am where I am simply because of who he is. Simply because of who he is. And I can expect nothing better from myself any time I step back into the flesh. I can expect, I can expect nothing else. That nobody was upset about it, particularly but me. I needed to see it. It's not that God made me sin, but since I was going to do it anyway, he sure didn't waste it. I needed to see that there's no big deal about me sinning. That's just all I am. Outside of him. But it gives me an ability to have compassion on people. We're so quick to judge one another in areas that we haven't been tempted. We haven't fallen. We don't want to talk about our error, but my goodness, couldn't they do better than theirs? But God has called you and me weak in ourselves, fallen creatures in ourselves, delivered over into death in ourselves, and by his mercy he has snatched us out of darkness, set us down in life, and has set us down on a sure, unfailing hope that will not fade away, a calling that is high, works it within us to his own pleasure and enrichment and joy by the power of his own self that indwells us. And so, we can say unto him, to him, through him, all praise and all honor and all glory. And not feel the hypocrite when we do it just because we sinned. Feel that I know I of all am able to say unto him. I of all who live am able to say bless him. Because I have seen a little drop, a little glimmer of what I am apart from him. And yet he's called me with a sure hope for he values me and has invested the riches of eternity in me. And he maintains me by his power and his only. Now friends, I can lay down and go sleep on that. I, 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 I can get a good night's sleep on that. 
that puts everything right back where it belongs in God. Puts my attention right back where it belongs on Him and off of myself. I can quit prancing around and thinking I'm a shot. I was, you know, I was a shot, okay, shot out. I can rest and spend all of my time admiring the one who has so called me and so empowered me by his own self. Father, we bless and praise your name. Lord, I thank you so very much for the greatness of your plan, for the inexpressible scope of your wisdom, for who you are. Now, Lord, I know that you've only chosen to show us a little bit about yourself, but the little drop you've chosen to let us know absolutely rattles our eyes. Oh, God, how great you are. How infinite is your mercy. How depthless is your goodness. How measureless is the love of your person. Oh, great and holy and awesome one. Honor and glory and riches belong to you. We kiss towards you, Lord God. We worship and adore you. We spread before you the full scope of our being. We lavish upon you our praise and our affection. Be pleased, O God, to take your pleasure in us. Be pleased, O God, to be satisfied with the work of your hands. Be pleased, O Lord, to be satisfied with the travail of your soul. I will not evaluate what you travailed for. Far be it from me to place an estimate of value on the church. My God, my Lord, only you know the true worth of the ones that you've called of the infinite value that you have placed upon them. Enough for me to say it is so. Enough to know that you understand it. Enough to agree with you and to lie down in what you have decreed and rest me in your unfailing person. What I don't understand I will pull up around me like a warm knitted blanket, a fluffy downy covering, and wrap myself in the warmth of all of the understanding of my God, and declare to myself that my God is worthy of trust, worthy of honoring, worthy of submitting to. And I go off to sleep the sweet sleep of the blessed knowing that I will arrive resting and from that position of rest will walk out into my day to celebrate real humanity joined to deity to express by my lifestyle the praise I would like to be able to say let my entire breathing in and breathing out be a symphony of praise and adoration to you. To this one, to this dear, dear Father, bless your heart, Lord. Bless your precious and dear heart. Take your pleasure amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.